5: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Scott Schaefer. Coming up, the FDA and the CDC are pausing use of the Johnson & Johnson single-shot COVID vaccine after reports of serious blood clots and a very small number of patients who got it. We'll get the latest on that. Then, after workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama rejected joining a union, Organized Labor is figuring out what comes next. Celebrity endorsements and a push by President Joe Biden failed to win over workers, and it's not the first time corporate employees have turned thumbs down in union drives. The J&J vaccine and the future of organized labor. All that next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Scott Schaefer, and we begin this hour with news this morning that the FDA and the CDC are recommending a pause in use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine after reports of extremely rare, and let me emphasize that, extremely rare cases of serious blood clots. Joining us to talk about what led to this and the implications of it as we race to vaccinate millions of people is Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford University. Dr. Maldonado, thanks for joining us. Let me begin just by asking you, what exactly did the CDC and the FDA see that uh, is is making them take this step this morning?
6: Well, the immediate issue was uh, six cases of uh, women uh, who had developed a very unusual Uh, clotting in their brain called a cavernous sinus thrombosis. This is basically a clot that sits around a circle of uh, a very large vein that encircles the base of the brain. Um, And um, uh, that's really all we know at this point. We do have a meeting tomorrow with uh, the ACIP to hear more details.
5: And so this is a particular kind of clot, and, and is there reason to think that it is associated with the vaccine or that it just might be?
6: Well, it's not clear, and it comes in the, remember, the backdrop here is that the AstraZeneca vaccine has had many cases uh, that are uh, potentially associated with similar clots uh, called, again, cavernous venous sinus thrombosis. And um, given that those two vaccines are made essentially from a similar platform that is a viral vector, um, there was concern that this should be investigated as soon as possible because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is approved in the U.S., whereas the AstraZeneca is not. And the AstraZeneca investigation is still ongoing with the World Health Organization and other organizations as well.
5: Any idea why women, especially women aged uh, 18 to 48, might be more susceptible to this?
6: Well, again, we'll find out more about that. I think one big question that has come up, and we were talking with uh, experts yesterday about this from the AstraZeneca standpoint, we didn't know anything about the Johnson & Johnson yet, was the idea that perhaps there might be something, uh, some autoimmune response. Um, And we do know that uh, women uh, may have a higher uh, rate of autoimmune uh, disease for some reason. And, it may be that that's not a link, but that's a possibility. And the other is that perhaps a use of uh, oral contraceptives may actually be involved. And again, have no evidence that that's the case, but uh, just some theories that people are putting out there that could be investigated regarding these potential links.
5: Is this the kind of thing, and, I, and I've been hearing this morning, that these uh, this potential problem shows up in the first couple of weeks after getting the vaccine. Is it the sort of thing that if you are aware of the risk, you can, you know, be on the lookout for certain symptoms so that if you catch it early, perhaps you can do something about it?
6: Well, yeah, that's exactly the issue. I think um, people who are uh, feeling like they're bruising a little more after the um after the uh, vaccination should be uh, made aware that this could be a problem. I I think at this point, it's too early to say whether we're, you know, what's going to happen with J&J with the AstraZeneca. That's certainly something that has been brought up because again, there've been more cases uh, with that vaccine and whether or not the risk benefit is even an issue. Because if you look at the risk of COVID disease compared to the, the potential risk for this rare disorder, in most age groups and for certainly for men the risk of this particular side effect is uh, really uh, far outweighed by the benefit of uh, actually being protected against covid so there is a risk benefit to be considered as well as whether or not it's a really a causal association that is are, is it really a cause and effect situation
5: and this is a requirement. I mean, I'm sorry, this is a recommendation, not a requirement, right? I mean, as we heard at the top of the news from KQED, I think one or two Bay Area counties may be taking that recommendation, but others perhaps aren't.
6: Well, yeah, so the federal, um, federally funded clinics will be holding for now, um, but, the, but it is a recommendation to everybody else. And again, tomorrow that we will be meeting um, with the ACIP, I'm a liaison to that group. And what is that? Um, uh, the uh, advisory committee on immunization practices. It's from the CDC. And that is the group that is charged with tracking uh, safety is signals from um, any of the vaccines that are administered. So they've been tracking safety signals all along and they're the ones who are going to be meeting tomorrow. Uh, to talk about the specifics the six, around these six cases. And I, I don't know if they'll bring up the AstraZeneca issue because, again, these are similar types of vaccines in that they use a particular virus vector, of a, a viral platform, whereas Pfizer and Moderna do not have those uh, viral platforms.
5: And then uh, just last question before I let you go. How concerned are you that this could in some way contribute to, you know, what already exists in many places, which is a hesitancy to get the vaccine at all?
6: Well, that's my biggest concern. You know, again, I, it's a terrible thing to see this happen. I know in the uh, outside the U.S. where AstraZeneca has been used, there have been some deaths already reported. Um, I think it's something like uh 30 deaths, um, and whether they're associated or not is, is still besides you know besides the fact that people will feel that they they are definitively associated, and this is why um, we really have to commend the CDC and other agencies for really bringing this uh, right up right away as soon as they thought there was a signal and having an open meeting. This will be an open public meeting online um, to be able to discuss what is known and what needs to be known uh, about the vaccine so yes we are concerned that it will undermine our vaccine efforts because we really do need to keep that top of mind we need to keep vaccinating people because the variants are still out there we are not really anywhere near um, getting rid of this virus.
5: All right Dr Yvonne Maldonado Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford University thanks so much for joining us.
6: Thank you so much.
5: And uh, KQED and NPR will be continuing to follow this news this morning that the FDA and the CDC are recommending a pause in use of that J&J vaccine. But for the rest of this hour, we're going to turn to the future of labor. Last week, as you may have heard, workers at an Amazon warehouse in Alabama dealt organized labor a stinging defeat, voting overwhelmingly not to join a union. Critics of Amazon and other big corporate employers say federal labor laws are stacked against unions, and they're looking to Congress and the Biden administration to level the playing field. And that is our topic this hour what comes next for unions after the bitter defeat in Alabama? Joining us are Ken Jacobs, chair uh, of the Center for Labor Research and Education at UC Berkeley. Ken Jacobs, welcome. Good morning. Also with us, Eleanor Mueller, labor reporter for Politico. Eleanor, good morning.
7: Good morning, thank you for having me.
5: And Sean Higgins, research fellow for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Sean Higgins, welcome to you as
3: well. Thank
5: you. Yeah. And let me begin with you, Ken. Uh, you know, we've had a few days now to digest this uh, news out of Alabama. What? Uh, what's your takeaway?
8: Well, I think this was a really good example of the desperate need for labor law reform in America. As you mentioned in the opening, it it made incredibly clear how much the deck is stacked against unions in organizing. We saw Amazon hire anti-union consultants who held captive audience meetings with workers to dissuade them from voting for the union in a way that's very intimidating to workers. Organizers made the decision not to do house calls during the pandemic. One of the ways they were reaching where uh, supporters could reach their coworkers was talking to them and outside of the gates. So Amazon had the city change the traffic light patterns. And workers filed cards for a bargaining unit of 1,500. Amazon said it should be 5,800, including seasonal employees. Left the union with a choice of either contesting the company's position to the NLRB, which slows everything down, or accept a larger unit, which includes many workers that they the, the pro-union workers had not been in contact with. The union then made that decision to go ahead, but large companies and anti-union consultants figured out long t- a long time ago that time was on their side and high turnover industries, they do everything they can to slow the process down. And remember, there are no financial penalties for violating labor law. Employers may be required to post notices saying they won't do it again or pay back wages to illegally fired workers minus any other, any other earnings the workers had since they were fired. And that's really why we need the PRO Act uh, a meaningful labor law reform so to make it much uh, more possible that workers can organize and exercise their right to collectively bargain.
5: And we'll get into that in just a moment. But Sean Higgins, what about you? What are your takeaways?
3: Well, I mean, I think the the, the vote actually sort of speaks for itself. I mean, the Occam's razor answer to this is maybe the, the Amazon workers uh, didn't, in fact, want a union. I mean, if you look at uh, the number the union only had to get a majority of the votes that were actually cast of the just under 6,000 who did it. There are about 3000 or so that did the union only had the union. Therefore only had to get about 25% of the actual voters at this facility to back it instead it only, it ended up getting about 13%.
5: A lot of people didn't Um, vote.
3: Yeah. I mean about, well, and and that's typical with any sort of, I mean, political elections work the same way. It's, it's based on who shows up to vote, not the total totality. Um, but the bottom line is, of the 6,000-odd people that, at this facility, the union only needed to get uh, about a quarter of them to support them. And it couldn't. It got only about half of even that. Uh, now, obviously, yeah, you, Amazon was not uh, in favor of having a union there, obviously. But if you listen to some of the, the comments from the workers who were quoted after the vote, what they said was they just weren't buying what the union was selling. And I think that's the issue that needs to be uh, addressed here. I mean, if, the, if the workers voted against the union, maybe the, maybe the answer is they just didn't want it.
5: Eleanor uh, Mueller, we're coming up on a break, but just uh, real quickly, the politics of this. I mean, Joe Biden is thought to be the most pro-labor president mm-hmm. ever, perhaps. Uh, did, is there a sense that, uh, you know, that he and others in the administration did enough to try to push this over the finish line? Or was it really a lost cause from the beginning?
7: So I think that that you touched on exactly what about this is so interesting. Um, You know, even before Biden won the election, before he took the office, you know, there was a lot of chatter about how he was going to be so pro-union. You know, he's married to a member of a teacher's union. He has described himself as a union man. Um, And we talked to all of these union presidents who were like, you know, if he gets into the Oval Office, we're going to we're going to thrive for the first time in a long time and it's interesting that you know here we are nearing the last 100 days of his presidency and this high profile union election yeah. you know I, an election that had the I, support of 70 70% I, of the public I'm sorry
5: land. I got I'm sorry Eleanor I've got to cut you off it was my my bad for uh, asking you a complicated question we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to continue our conversation about the future of labor 866 733 6786 to join us And we continue our conversation about the future of labor unions in light of the defeat at the Amazon warehouse in Alabama. Scott Schaefer here this hour. My guests are Ken Jacobs, chair of the UC Berkeley Labor Center, Eleanor Mueller, labor reporter for Politico, Sean Higgins, research fellow for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And let me bring in another voice here, Sarah Jaffe. She's author of the book, Work Won't Love You Back, and a reporting fellow also at uh, Type Center Media. Sarah, thanks for joining us.
9: Hi, thanks for having me.
5: Yeah, and Eleanor, again, my apologies for interrupting you there at the break. You were talking about the Biden administration thought to be so pro-labor. Uh, the Labor Secretary, Marty, um, blanking on his name, uh, uh, the, uh, Marty Walsh, Marty Walsh uh, the former mayor of mm-hmm. Boston who was also in the construction trade, uh, got bipartisan support in uh, Congress, in the Senate for his confirmation. Oh, yeah, so like, so what does that all add up to? Or, or is it that they just kind of came in in the middle of the play?
7: That is a great question, you know, and I I think the root of the issue is that, you know, Biden does have a number of things he can control when it comes to increasing the power of unions. Um, Obviously, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act um, would overhaul labor law, but that has to go through the Senate, which needs at least 60 votes. So on his own, Biden can... um, do a number of things via DOL regulation, um, via National Labor Relations Board regulations. Um, But it's interesting because the National Labor Relations Board actually still has a Republican majority and will until August, when he'll be able to replace one of those Republican members with a Democratic member. Um, so, you know, basically the proactive is stalled in Congress. Biden has a number of tools at his disposal. He hasn't really been able to take advantage of them yet. So, you know, part of this Amazon election may indeed be that he just has not had enough time, enough opportunity to uh, bring some of these things to fruition. <laughs>
5: I want to, once again, give out the phone number if you'd like to join us. We'd love to hear from you if you're in a union or perhaps work someplace that tried or talked about forming a union. Maybe you supported it. Maybe you didn't. But give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, you can email us. It's forum. At KQED.org. And Eleanor, just briefly, the PRO Act uh, that you mm-hmm. referred it to a moment ago, uh, it did pass the, it's called the, the formal name, Protecting the Right to Organize Act, passed the House. Yeah. Uh, of course, now it, it runs up against the uh, split <laughs> Senate. But what, what you, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of give us the, the crypt notes here. What would it do? How would it change the, the playing field?
7: Of course. So the PRO Act actually passed the House last session. It was never taken up by the Senate. Um, You know, big surprise there. Mitch McConnell was not a fan. And the House passed it again earlier this year. It is now waiting again uh, a vote in the Senate. Um, And basically what this bill would do is amend the National Labor Relations Act for the first time in decades. So that is the law that controls how private sector employees in the US can form unions, the PRO Act would basically make it easier for workers to form and join unions. You know, one of the ways in which it would do this that we've seen get a lot of attention recently is it would uh, redefine independent contractors under the National Labor Relations Act and give uh, more independent contractors, more gig workers, the ability to choose whether or not they wanted to uh, form or join a union.
5: And Sarah Jaffe, let me bring you in on this. Uh, You know, there is always focus when there's a union drive on whether or not it wins, whether it passes, and often it doesn't pass, especially at some of these bigger companies in recent decades. But you've written about uh, the the idea that, uh, you know, you don't have to have a union to give workers more rights. Uh, Tell us a little about about what you're getting at there.
9: Yeah, so the workers take rights themselves, right? I mean, we have a labor law system that on some level, as Ken was saying, is incredibly broken. It's just absolutely, you know, a massive uphill battle at a normal company, let alone one that runs half the infrastructure for the Internet and has massive surveillance capabilities like Amazon does. But labor law also protects your right to act like a union, whether you are you know, formally recognized as a collective bargaining agent or not. So workers at Amazon facilities in Chicago last week also went on strike. They are not members of a union. They call themselves Amazon Amazonians United Chicagoland. And they walked off the job to protest the new megacycle shift, which is a ten hour overnight shift in a warehouse. Um, which if that sounds like hell to you, yes it does to me too and apparently also to them. So they went on strike to protest that and labor law does protect your right to do that even if you don't formally have a union. Um, I've also talked to actually in the middle of writing an article about this right now, Amazon workers outside of Minneapolis who organize with an organization called the Awood Center which is a worker center that's rooted in the East African immigrant community and they famously brought amazon to the table amazon doesn't call it formal bargaining but nevertheless they won concessions it's important to note especially since today is the first day of ramadan that they won concessions around prayer time in the workplace and being able to you know get certain accommodations for when they're fasting during ramadan because many of these workers are you know practicing muslims So there are plenty of ways to have leverage on the job other than winning a really cumbersome union election process.
5: But are they protected against, you know, some sort of retribution from Amazon? I mean, they're not, you know, they're known as a good employer in that they pay well, very well, in places like Alabama, $15 an hour. It's like twice the you minimum wage. You know, actually, there.
9: That it's, it's twice the minimum wage, but it's actually lower than the median wage in that area. So hmm. I want to, okay, you know, point. be cautious of thinking that Amazon is, is giving a wonderful gift to people.
5: But what, you know, what so you say, yeah, workers in Chicago could do that. They could mm-hmm. walk out. But is yes. are they also protected at the same time? Because, you know, Amazon can, can fire people at will. They do that all yeah. the time.
9: Yes. So, right. So the law does actually protect them. That means, of course, they have the same legal protections as anybody else, whether you're in a union or not, which is to say you get to bring it to the National Labor Relations Board, which, as Ken was saying earlier, um, only has a limited amount of penalties it can impose. So right now, for instance, Elon Musk, right, was found to have violated the law, among other things, on Twitter. Um, of tweeting illegal things about um, the union drive at the Tesla plant in Fremont, California. And so the NLRB said you have to rehire this one worker who was illegally fired and you have to post notices in the factory and read a notice to your workers saying that they have the right to organize. But Musk is appealing this. And interestingly, the workers pointed this out to me. He's appealing this in the Fifth Circuit in Louisiana rather than in the Ninth Circuit in California. And I will let your listeners guess as to why the Fifth Circuit might be more... uh, Friendly to the employer.
5: Yeah, a little more conservative area. Although the Ninth Circuit, uh, Mm -hmm. President Trump was successful and Mitch McConnell and getting some Mm -hmm. uh, more conservative judges on the Ninth Circuit. So you do get some uh, a little more balance, perhaps, depending on your point of view than we had. We're talking about the future of unions uh, in light of the defeat of that organizing effort at the plant in Alabama, the Amazon plant. Give us a call now if you want to join us. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or, you know, you can email us, too. It's forum at kqed.org. We've got some good comments here from some of our listeners. Uh, One who writes, I believe many of the benefits and worker protections that union workers receive should be made available to all workers through government legislation, not through membership in a union. If national health care, minimum wage and labor laws and social security were reformed, the need for unions would be reduced. Unions and collective bargaining only work in a small percentage of employment situations where there is a physical plant, assembly line or transportation system that can be shut down. Ken uh, Jacobs, let me ask you, uh, do unions need to do some uh, you know, kind of updating themselves—not just legislation, but the unions and in, in the in the way they approach the workplace.
8: Well, I would first—I would contest the latter point about where unions are relevant. We've seen large growth. Some places we've seen real growth in in unions in recent years, is in, for instance, janitors and security guards who aren't in large plants and there are fewer workers in, in any given place. But by having a union, that's given them the voice on the job and the ability to affect their working conditions, strong unions in hotels and growing unions at airports. So, and in the service sectors, largely home care workers being the big example of workers who are very much not in the same place together, but the union has enabled them to improve their uh, wages and, and, and benefits. So overall, yes, there are new things that unions need to do given changes in the economy, clearly, And if we have a labor law reform that makes it more possible for workers to organize, I'd say say we'd see a a broad increase. But again, it's not just about the health care benefits and just about the wages and things you can get through general laws. Workers need a voice on the job. And one of the things we see now with changing technology and a lot of what happens at Amazon in terms of surveillance and speed up a lot of these things aren't things you can do blunt force through broad laws. There are things that need to be tailored to the specific, the specific uh, work site, the specific industry. And those are things best worked out in collective bargaining where workers themselves have the voice as to what should be done with those working conditions. And that's why labor's labor uh, unions are so important. And in, in this, we, right now, we're seeing the broadest popular support for unions in terms of polling in the last 50 years, as well as the least popular support for big businesses. I think people really understand this and through the pandemic have really seen what it means in, in the conditions in terms of how employers have behaved around workers safety that has really increased that support.
5: Sean Higgins, what would you add to that? Or do you, I'm assuming you have some disagreement there.
3: Um, well, in in, in a, f- a few areas, but but not uh, something I, I want to uh, expend that much time on. Uh, more more to the point of what generally unions have to do. Certainly, they are going to have to change and rethink how they organize. I mean, I think one thing we, we see from this uh, the Amazon uh, vote is that uh, a lot of these sort of traditional methods just aren't working. There's also the issue that you know you have large areas that just don't have union cultures anymore, and people don't. Didn't grow up with their father or their uncle or somebody like that uh, in the union and, and see that as a sort of natural thing for them to be in. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of the issue. The other issue is, you know, the nature of the workforce is changing. I mean, we just had a people over the last year, more people have been working from home than ever before. Union organizing takes place traditionally at the workplace and organizing people collectively where they see their fellow workers as colleagues. If you don't do that, if you're at home and you never basically interact with most of the other workers at the company you do, that's gonna make organizing a whole lot harder. And um, I think one of the things that's gonna happen as a result of the the COVID crisis is we're going to have a lot more of a shift away from offices and uh, traditional work sites more to people working at home. And that's gonna make organizing uh, certainly a lot different and they're going to have to find ways to adapt and change to that.
5: All right, let's go to the phones. Again, the number to call if you want to join us, 866-733-6786. And Kelly in Santa Rosa, you're first. Go.
4: Hi there. Yeah, um, so I'm I'm an EMT, and it's a very common misconception um, in these major metropolitan areas that ambulance companies are uh, a public third service along with fire and police. But that's really not the case at all. These are private industry ambulance companies for emergency medical care. Mm-hmm. And those are union protected jobs. And without these unions, we wouldn't have any protections at all that are similarly afforded to uh, fire and police. So what,
5: what's yeah, an people, example? You know, who are working at home.
4: Yeah, sorry, sorry Kelly.
5: Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, well, give us an example of, uh, of something, especially during this pandemic period where the union has been helpful mm-hmm. to you in your, in your job.
4: Absolutely. So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, use of PPE, um, you know, working in, in those safe working conditions, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about, you know, and being in the back of an ambulance and having to wear masks and, you know, being protected by our union uh, shop stewards. You know, it's just like our safety working conditions, we're, we're never going to be able to work from home. That's never something that's going to be available to us. And, our union works so closely with management to make sure that our workers feel safe. You know, when we're responding to calls.
5: Yeah, Kelly, thanks for that, uh, Sarah Jaffe. Um, you know, in terms of the sort of quote-unquote modern workplace the gig economy very different from what Kelly's describing there as an EMT worker uh, but what are you hearing you know we had a B5 here in California mm-hmm. to define workers as you know when they could when employers could define them as independent contractors that got uh, reversed by the voters with prop 22 you know so where does where does all of this including the PRO Act the bill in Congress where does it leave gig workers
9: There are so many questions. First, I just wanted to note on the working from home front, um, we've actually been seeing a massive wave of organizing among some of these workers who are working from home. For instance, the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union just announced today that the Brookings Brookings Institute and Urban Institute workers are unionizing, and they've had over 20 new Units organized just in the past year during the pandemic while those people are working from home. So it's actually interesting the degree to which we have a wave of white collar organizing happening also announced today that the tech employees at the New York Times are organizing. Hmm. So you certainly don't need especially with the Internet a real physical workplace in order to organize. And this is definitely true of gig workers. So organizations like the Gig Workers Collective and um, the Rideshare Drivers United, which is a California-based organization of Uber and Lyft drivers, have been doing a lot of that organizing, you know, using the same kinds of technology that are, you know, shaping their working conditions. And that's been really important in these discussions of, you know, what bargaining for gig workers could look like. People are talking about things like sectoral bargaining, which is really big in parts of Europe. Um, People are talking about what it would mean to collectively bargain if you're not an employee. For instance, I'm a freelance journalist. The PRO Act would amend labor law that would give people like me the right to actually collectively bargain, something that's currently banned by antitrust law, which sees me as a small business that is supposed to be competing with other small businesses. So there's all sorts of things that are happening across what we think of as sort of the new working class that really are changing. The, the fact that you know there is so much focus on this union drive in Alabama, it's great on the one hand that a lot of people are interested in talking about working conditions and how we can improve them. But that's also missing things like a strike of 800 nurses in Massachusetts that's been going on for over five weeks now. Um, there's There's organizing and worker militancy happening across sectors right now that I think is yeah. really, really interesting.
5: All right, let's go back to the phones now. And David in Redwood City, welcome. Hello? Yeah, hi. Go right ahead. You're on. Yeah, uh, I, I work for the uh, a local market here in the
2: in the Bay Area. And we're, we're part of the union UFCW. And we have not been able to get any kind of compensation for the, uh, you know, being essential workers. And I was wondering what's going on with that. Is that something that the Company subsidizes, or does it come out of a government subsidy? And also, why are they having such a hard time having to do it city by city? City council keeps having these meetings. It seems like they really don't want to pay us the money. Um, do you know anything? Why the unions hasn't been able to. You know, sink their teeth into this issue.
5: Yeah, Ken Jacobs. I think uh, David is talking about the so-called hero pay, which some cities, Long Beach, many cities in the Bay Area, have adopted to uh, require employers like grocery stores to who've made a lot of money in the in the pandemic to uh, provide hero pay. Can you can you respond a little bit more to the union role in that?
8: Sure. Early on in the pandemic, Kroger and some of the grocery stores agreed to prov- provide hero pay. Uh, for workers who w- were working in, uh, at their own risk during the pandemic in the grocery stores. And then after a number of months, they decided to end that, even though they were uh, bringing in record profits. So the union, working with various community organizations around the state, began passing laws in different cities in order to require them to do so, because the companies were refusing to, to uh, do so on their own.
5: Yeah. And so that was something that was temporary, but something that obviously was an expression of uh, support and appreciation for the risk that a lot of grocery workers were putting themselves at. Uh, Something that some grocery stores chafed at, I think, down in Long Beach. Uh, One of the major chains was threatening to close if they were forced to pay that extra salary. But, David, thanks so much for the call. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about the future of unions 866-733-6786, the number to call if you want to join us.
1: We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go.
5: And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour. We're talking about the future of labor. Our guests: Ken Jacobs, chair of the Center for Labor Research and Education at UC Berkeley, Eleanor Mueller, labor reporter with Politico, Sean Higgins with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and author Shara Jaffe. She wrote the book, Work Won't Love You Back. That is definitely true. 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you want to join us. 866-733-6786. You can also send us a note, comment, or question on Facebook or twitter we're at kqed forum and here's a comment from noel who writes amazon kept talking about fifteen dollars an hour work is more than how much you make and organizers need to make an argument that a union delivers more um it seems like sean that was maybe part of the point you were making at the very beginning sean higgins that uh you know maybe people just didn't want to join based on what they were hearing from the union or perhaps they were satisfied of course they also might have felt intimidated
3: It's possible some uh, did feel intimidated, but the ones who have spoken and quoted in publications like The Wall Street Journal, you know, the ones who voted in the actual election and they asked them why they voted against the union, that's generally the answer that they've given. They just didn't see what advantage the union would would give to them. Um, I think they may have had their issues or some complaints with uh, uh, Amazon, but they didn't uh, see the company as sort of uh, an enemy. And I, I think that's the important thing to, to take away from this. I mean, if you're going to have collective bargaining, I mean, the, the workers need to be need to have a, a reason and an underlying basis for doing it. And it just didn't appear to be that stro- for all the hype leading up to this. It didn't appear to be that strong in the case of the Amazon vote. And I think, yeah, that uh, uh, message you just mentioned at the beginning uh, illustrates that point.
5: All right. Let's go back to the phones and we'll go now to San Rafael and Morgan. Welcome.
2: Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I am the president of a high school teachers union representing high school teachers and other certificated staff here in Santa Rafael. Um, and I think the missing piece of this is that labor and management can have an incredibly collaborative relationship that is beneficial to both sides. I think there are some companies that that are onto this and work uh, collaboratively collaboratively with their unions to the benefit of uh, not just the workers, but also the company as a whole. Uh, Volkswagen and Costco spring to mind as possible examples. But I also think this is very common in uh, public sector unions, where um, we have a very collaborative relationship with our management. They seek our input and our advice on decisions affecting the school district as a whole, because as the people who work directly with the students we have more in-person knowledge than they necessarily do on certain topics so I think that that's I think we're a little bit letting Amazon off the hook that they might see a benefit uh, to having the workers unionized and be able to run the plant more efficiently
5: Eleanor Muir let me bring you in on that. Uh, Morgan mentioned the teachers unions and that of course has been very much in the news uh, with very mixed feelings about how the labor unions the teacher unions in particular have uh, Uh, really, you know, of course, advocating for their members, but also alienating some parents and and those uh, who felt like maybe they were going too far in trying to keep schools closed until they got everything they wanted, many of which uh, the demands were beyond what the CDC was requiring.
7: It is so interesting that you bring that up because I actually just wrote an article about this with one of my colleagues who is an education reporter, Um, but I think it's especially pertinent in California. Um, You know, the teachers union there at the state level is a national education association um, affiliate. And I think that we've seen a pretty interesting disparity in how the nation's two biggest teachers unions have handled school reopenings. We have the um, NEA, which has taken kind of a more cautious approach. And then we have the American Federation of Teachers, which for over a year now has been urging schools, um, urging cities to allow students to return to the classroom. And so it's interesting. I think that California has been, you know, almost this hotbed for that tension that you speak of between teachers, unions, parents, um, and the schools themselves. I spoke with, you know, a handful of teachers in the Bay Area recently, actually, who said that, you know, you well, know, while they've never had an issue with their union before, um, you know, they didn't quite agree with the way that the union was handling it. Um, so, yeah, definitely some bumps in the road. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, the GOP has kind of seized on this fractioning of teachers unions and has kind of tried to use it to lobby against Democrats. But we have not seen public support for teachers unions um, decrease. You know, we saw three recent polls that showed that, you know, a majority of voters still stood behind teachers unions, still saw them as largely positive. And so I think that's an interesting takeaway. You know, we do, we have this trauma of um, teachers sometimes being frustrated, uh, parents sometimes being frustrated, but uh, public support seems to have held relatively constant Um So it'll be interesting to see how that changes as more people get vaccinated and as the schools continue reopening, continuing to plan for the next school year.
5: Although it is worth distinguishing between teachers unions and teachers. I mean, uh, there are places, uh, you know, there are some red states in the past few years where teachers uh, got a lot of public support and ultimately won when they uh, made a case for higher pay, uh, even though they didn't have a union. Uh, which sort of comes back, Eleanor, to that point about, you know, you can actually get things done for yourselves as a workforce without having a union in some cases.
7: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's interesting. We've been looking lately at the National Labor Relations Board data in terms of uh, petitions to form a union. And, you know, it's not as high as we maybe would have expected. So we spoke with the president of service Employees International Union last week and she basically said that we are seeing more workers trying to organize outside of the agency, you know, the composition of the agency. Um, post-Trump is leaning a little more conservative, a little more anti-union than it has in the past. And I think that a lot of unions have taken note of that and are trying to find ways to organize workers, you know, without without formally recognizing um, a union. So that's interesting.
5: All right, let's go back to the phones again. The number is 866-733-6786. And Griffin and Cupertino, you're next. Welcome.
7: Hi,
2: yeah. Um, I was just curious... Um, about why it seems like there are so many anti-labor laws on the books uh, and it seems so hard to organize now when uh, I thought that free association was a, a constitutionally protected right. So thanks for taking my call.
5: All right. Thanks, Griffin. Ken, uh, when he says anti-labor laws, I'm assuming he means some of the uh, uh, things that perhaps are uh, or companies are allowed to do, too, like as we saw in the Amazon case. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts when you hear him say anti-labor law is what comes to mind? Yeah.
8: Well, say that overall, we have a labor law in the United States that is very weak and that companies learned really starting in the 1980s how to get around. And we, there, and we have not had labor law reform uh, to address any of these issues. The other thing that happens with labor law, which is different than employment law, is in employment law, the federal government sets a basic standard, like there's a federal minimum wage. But states and local governments can go above that standard. In labor law, the federal law is what applies across the board. Local, state, and local governments can't go above that standard. The only places that they get, that they have jurisdiction over are public sector workers or workers who are excluded from federal labor law, like farm workers. So that means, in order to get changes in labor law, you need congress to act and with the filibuster that makes that very difficult
5: yeah and sarah jaffe uh, you've written about uh, you know the fact that a lot of workers don't even know what their rights are quite quite apart from having a union they just don't know what they're allowed to do
9: yeah i think it's really important to note that you know this is not something we get taught in public schools not to beat up on the teachers um <laughs> But, you know, aside from a few places, and it was really interesting, actually, that in, in you know, 2011, when Wisconsin saw massive labor protests, that Wisconsin's one of the states that does teach labor history in its high schools. So um, that was really important. I wanted to go back to the teacher's question, though, because I want to take issue with the thing that you said, which is separating teachers unions from teachers. What are teachers unions if they are not groups of teachers who are acting collectively? Right. Like the union is not a thing that lives in Washington, D.C. and is only run by a couple of people at the top. The union is those groups of teachers who understandably don't want to march back into a workplace and get covid. When they're already working. And this has been such a frustration for so many of the teachers that I've talked to this year that people talk as if schools are closed and teachers are eating bonbons all day. (laughs) Teachers are figuring out, I just wrote a 5,000 word article about the ways that teachers have been struggling to make online education actually interesting and engaging, doing everything from like buying wigs and costumes to teach, you know, first grade online to doing virtual field trips and having like national parks employees zoom in and show the Kids the park that they can't go to in person. So, you know, it's it's quite frustrating to me to hear this sort of conversation about teachers' unions as though they're something that isn't teachers. When the teachers organized in West Virginia and went on a statewide strike that one gains for every public employee in the state of West Virginia, A, they do have unions, they just don't have legal collective bargaining rights. And B, That's what a union is. If you look at those pictures of the West Virginia State House full of teachers in red bandanas evoking the history of the mine wars, that's a union. That's what a union is.
5: Well, Sean Higgins, I think you might say that, yes, that is what a union is, but there are also, it's sort of like saying, well, I don't like Congress, but I love my member of Congress. I think they're doing a good job. I mean, you, there there are distinct distinctions, are there not? Would you, you know, based on what, you know, just a response, if you would, to what Sarah said. Yeah, well, saying.
3: I mean, get, get back to, for example, the issue of, um, you know, the, the teacher the teachers' unions and the reopening of schools. I mean, the unions are doing what they're supposed to do in this case, which is represent the interests of their members. I think the surprise and the, and the the issue that's created some friction. Certainly, I've seen it here in, in Virginia, um, and I was talking to some uh, parents about it the other day. Um, is that you know they're realizing that yeah, that's what the unions do, and they're not necessarily looking out for the students or the parents, or, or other people. They're looking out for the teachers first, and that's what they're supposed to do. But it's a bit of a shock to people. It's there was a similar issue um, about a year or so ago, I, I think, in in the Black Lives Matter movement, when people were waking up to the realization that police unions were doing a very good job of defending uh, officers when they were charged with uh, malfeasance. And the point is, that's what a union is supposed to do. It's supposed to represent the members and their interests. But a lot of people were really upset about the the fact that they realized, oh, they're doing this uh, so well that a lot of these officers are not actually getting uh, charged or getting off relatively easily for what in other circumstances would be ser- would be a ser- more serious a uh, penalty and that's sort of i think the, the the case we're seeing in some of this is yes the unions represent their members but that representation uh, despite what they sometimes say isn't always to the benefit of everybody else
5: Yeah. And just to your point, Sarah, we should say that, you know, teachers are heroic, right? I mean, they are asked to do so many things in the classroom and take care of so many societal problems in addition to teaching and making sure their kids learn math and reading and everything else. I mean, they have to deal with learning disabilities and language uh, differences and, you know, all those things. So I definitely want to be clear that uh, the teachers are uh, not just on the front lines in the pandemic, but always. Uh, Here's a comment from Curtis who writes, there are too many generations of workers that do not understand the benefits of labor unions. The GOP and new liberals have worked against American labor far too long, and there is no strong, well-funded labor groups to help restore union representation as a force in America. What catalyst will turn this around so American workers get fair representation? in america ken i'll put that to you and you know, i think some of uh, what uh, curtis is writing there you could you could trace back to a certain extent to ronald reagan and breaking the uh, patco union the uh, air traffic controllers union
8: that that's right we we did see a big turning point in with ronald reagan in the beginning of the 1980s broke the union with the air traffic control wrote, controllers fired the air traffic controllers and that sort of set us on a path of being open season on unions. We w- we went from 1979, one out of four American workers were in a union down to uh, less than one out of 12 today. And so one of the things that makes it more difficult is, and, and I think Sean mentioned, people don't have the experience. They don't have the parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles who were in a union. So people just know Less about unions. I mean, I think what's interesting today is we're seeing a lot more support for unions, and that popularity of unions, as I mentioned earlier, is at an all-time high. And I think one of the key reasons for that is that unions really have taken on bargaining for the common good. That when we what we saw with the teachers' unions, as Sarah mentioned, was that their, their demands were demands for that were important for teachers and demands that were important for students and parents. And they came together with those students and parents. We saw that in the teacher strike in Oakland as well, really strong support because the teachers were standing up for education. And and I have to say with around COVID and and some of the things that that Eleanor mentioned um, around why that popularity has maintained is that in this case, teachers really were both concerned about their own health but about the health of their students, the health of their students' families and concerns about transmission back to the community. And so you really saw some differences based on the groups that were more affected by COVID, especially uh, lower-income communities and communities of color, had much more concern about opening how schools were open and and opening schools than, say, you saw in some white middle-class families. So I think that what's made unions strong have grown popularity is to degree they are out bargaining for much more than themselves.
5: All right, let's go back to the phones and Madeline in San Jose. You're next.
4: Yes. Hi, um, I'm an adjunct lecturer at Santa Clara University, and I wanted to point out that some of the union busing tactics that Amazon used in Alabama um, that Santa Clara is is doing the same um, they've hired a, a union a known union busting law firm Littler Mendelssohn and we've been I, I've we've been seeking to um, have a vote for almost four years yeah so we're facing a lot and, and for many of the same reasons
5: yeah and that happens a lot in just right here in San Francisco interestingly the tartine bakery a very popular, famous, successful bakery or the workers there uh, a year ago organized. And just recently, I think in the last couple of days, they have finally formed the union that they voted for over a year ago. And, uh, you know, Ken, back to you. I mean, this is uh, it doesn't you don't have to be in Alabama <laughs> to find uh, employers who don't
8: really want to have a union. Right. And and I think this is a key point because it's not just the all the process that goes through to win the right to collectively bargain. It's that employers then do everything they can to delay and stop ever reaching that first contract. And one of the important things in the PRO Act is it also not only makes it easier for workers to organize and bargain collectively, but it also makes it easier to get that first contract by having a process of of mediation and arbitration uh, in in those first contracts, because that's the, the, That's the important time to get it. We have a a good share of of unions we see win those those elections and then can never get to that first contract. So that's also important.
5: Yes, it is. Coming up on the end of the hour. But Eleanor Mueller, let me go to you. What do you expect to happen uh, in the coming weeks in Congress, not just on the PRO Act, but uh, the appointments to the NLRB and so on?
7: Um, it, so it's interesting. Uh, in the press releases we saw after the Amazon election, you know, almost every single one of them mentioned the PRO Act. You know, the focus of attention on the Hill right now is this infrastructure plan that Biden's released, and he included the PRO Act as part of that plan. You know, if he if they decide to pass the bill via budget reconciliation, that is probably going to have to be stripped because it's not related to budget. Um but yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of talk about you know how to include some of these labor provisions in the infrastructure plan. You know if that's yeah. going to even be possible under Senate rules, um, and then if not, you know the only stuff available to them is eliminating the filibuster. Yeah,
5: so. and we know we know <laughs> what the, we know what they're up against there. But thank you so much, uh, Eleanor Mueller from Politico. Thanks for joining us, Ken Jacobs from UC Berkeley's Center for Labor Research, Sean Higgins from the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and Sarah Jaffe, author. of of work won't love you back thank you all very much I should say also uh, she has a podcast uh, that you can tune in for as well all right Mina Kim is coming up for another hour of forum be sure you stick around for that I'm Scott Schaefer thanks for joining us thanks for all the great comments and questions I'll be back tomorrow again Mina Kim coming up next